Welcome to Skim This. Remember this theme song? This week on the show, we talk to the head of the CDC about everything from new vaccines to what it will take for schools to reopen, and a whole lot else, like traveling, double masking, and whether pregnant women should get vaccinated. Then, a year into working from home, we Zoomed with the scientists behind the first ever study on Zoom fatigue to learn why video chatting leaves us feeling so burnt out. We'll also break down five other stories from the week's news, like the latest on New York Governor Andrew Cuomo, the status of the $15 minimum wage, and what's up with Dr. Seuss. We're here to make you smarter and the news less overwhelming. Let's skim this. This week, two states made a pretty major announcement. The governors of Texas and Mississippi said, hey, we're fully reopened. No need to wear a mask if you don't want to. Oh, and businesses can be at 100% capacity. If you're thinking, did Texas and Mississippi eradicate COVID for good? The answer is no, not at all. And the decision to roll back COVID restrictions has the medical community and the president pretty angry. Especially because, as President Biden said this week, thanks to the approval of a third COVID vaccine by the company Johnson & Johnson, it might not be that long until states could reopen safely. We are on the cusp of being able to fundamentally change the nature of this disease because of the way in which we're able to get vaccines in people's arms. We've been able to move that all the way up to the end of May to have enough for every American, to get every adult American to get a shot. And the last thing, the last thing we need is the Neanderthal thinking that in the meantime, everything's fine, take off your mask, forget it. It still matters. To get some context on the week's news and whether we can get a permission slip to visit our parents or book that overdue vacation, we spoke with one of America's top doctors. Here's our Zoom chat with the director of the CDC, Dr. Rochelle Walensky. I think a lot of people and a lot of Americans have been told different months and that timeline has shifted around a lot as we've gotten new news about new variants and new vaccines. I wonder from your perspective, you know, should Americans get their hopes up at this point? I think the president presented a timeline of when we can expect enough volume of vaccine so that we have the potential to get the population of America vaccinated. What gives me pause is to be too optimistic is to watch what happens in the month of March and April. So I really do feel like we're at this critical nexus in time where we are racing to get people vaccinated. However, we are still at quite a high level of disease. We have 60 to 70,000 new cases a day. That's still extraordinarily high. And we have the variants, the hypertransmissible variants circulating. So the combination of those two things really challenges us to make sure that we do all that we can to mitigate that while we're racing to ramp up vaccine. How we behave in the next month or two before we get everybody vaccinated, several months before we get everybody vaccinated, is really going to depend on what the future holds. The future will depend on how we behave. On that note, I think for a lot of people in our audience, their parents and their grandparents have started getting vaccinated. And I'm curious, once our loved ones are vaccinated, do we still need to adhere to stricter guidelines and precautions like social distancing? And if you could just kind of give a brief explanation as to why. You know, I think we're going to take baby steps toward releasing some of the guidelines. Right now, we've vaccinated over, uh, we've dosed over 70 million doses of vaccine. That's really, truly extraordinary in the timeline that we've had. But if you look at the number of people who are fully vaccinated and fully protected at this point, it's still less than 10%. 
So we need to do things on an individual level, I think, that are going to be different than what we're going to do at a population level. And so we will be coming out soon with guidance as to how um, people should behave after they've been vaccinated or if they want to visit loved ones who've been vaccinated. And I'm really enthusiastic about those. But I want to just make sure that we're taking baby steps because in the backdrop of all of this is the need to ramp up so much vaccination the need to get more people vaccinated and this constant threat of these hypertransmissible variants. I'm wondering if you could help skim how someone should get a vaccine appointment. What are best practices for every American, no matter what state you live in, that they should keep in mind when trying to get a vaccine appointment? First of all, I would say if you're eligible, keep trying. What will happen is we know in the coming months, there's going to be this inflection point. We've had such an overswelling of people who are interested in getting vaccine. And, you know, as we've ramped up the vaccine supply very soon, I think we're going to have a really extraordinary amount of vaccine supply. We have resources on the CDC website as to where our pharmacy programs are. And I would go to your state websites because so many of these are state driven as to where you can get a vaccine. But in the context of all of that, I would say that one of the things we really need to do is when we have all of this vaccine available, we need to encourage our neighbors, encourage ourselves, encourage one another to get vaccinated. Because while we have such a challenge right now and people are having a hard time getting vaccine appointments, and I want to encourage people to be persistent. On a personal note, I'm wondering if there are people in your own life who've been eligible for the vaccine, who've had trouble getting one, and and what you said to them if they've kind of encountered that frustration. Um, yes. <laughs> I, my parents had a hard time getting vaccine. My, uh, my son, who's an EMT, is still having a hard time getting the vaccine. So I, I understand it on a personal note as well. On vaccine equity, what can the CDC do to stop some of the Americans who are cutting the vaccine line? You know, what I would say is we are working really hard to ensure equitable access. So let me give you some examples of things that I'm really super proud of. We're working closely with FEMA to look at the census data in different states, as well as the social vulnerability index, and to match where these massive community vaccination centers that are vaccinating people at 6,000 people a day should go. And when you look at the race ethnicity data from those efforts, it's really extraordinary um, to see that they're really reaching hard hit communities. We're working with the federal pharmacy program to ensure that the pharmacies are getting to the communities that need the vaccine the most. We know that about 90% of Americans live within five miles of a trusted pharmacy. We're trying to get to those. So we're really trying hard to make sure that our tentacles run deep into the localities that are hardest hit. Are you frustrated when you see people cutting the line? What does that kind of feel like for you as you're overseeing these efforts? What I will say is I'm heartened by the people who are doing so much to help communities get vaccine that need it. So more so than I get frustrated about these these individual anecdotes, I'm really heartened by the massive hearts of people, um, the news stories that you're seeing, people who are spending their time on the phones trying to get elderly vaccinated, the Uber drivers who are bringing elderlies and and hardest-hit communities to places of vaccination. So my, my heart is more warmed than it is hurt. I wanted to pivot quickly to schools. Everyone wants them open. Parents want them open. This administration says schools need to be open. What is something that schools could do tomorrow to better equip them to get back up and running? That isn't necessarily redoing an HVAC system, but is like a smaller fix that could be an important step on the journey to reopening a lot of schools. 
I would say just leaning in. There have been so many things that people have been challenged and say, this is impossible, that is impossible, this is going to be hard. Opening schools is going to be hard, especially if they've been closed for a year. So the real question is, take a look at the operational guidance that we've put out, take a look at the roadmap, understand what are the next best steps. Is it moving out furniture so you can de-densify classrooms? Is it repurposing your all-purpose room or your gym so that you can have bigger spaces? Lean into this. I think COVID is going to be with us for a while, maybe not exactly in the way that we've seen it for this past year, but we are going to have to make some changes in our day-to-day in the months ahead. And it is so very important to get our children back to school. So lean into the guidance and take those steps. I'm asking, I have a couple of friends who are teachers and I, I know that they're really curious. If you could just provide a little more clarity for me on like maybe two examples of operational guidance that you think schools should be looking at specifically, like is it opening windows? Is it moving chairs to be six feet apart? So a lot of this depends on where your community is in terms of how much community spread. Most of the disease from schools comes in from the community. So that's thing one. Thing two is to ensure that people are wearing masks. We know for the most part, and I've talked to a lot of parents and a lot of teachers, not all schools are wearing masks. Um, In many schools, they are not required. So what I would say, and what the CDC has said is make sure that you have a mask requirement for schools. When we have breaches in those masks and a lot of community spread is when we get disease. So we would really encourage you to think about the six feet of distance. That's not gonna be practical in every classroom. So what can you do? So for example, in our younger schools, we could cohort our children. If we could have five or six younger children in a small cohort, they may not need to be six feet apart, but they'll need to be six feet apart from the teacher. So how is it that we can create these cohorts, taking out the bookshelves and the unnecessary equipment, figuring out how we can teach without sharing equipment. And then also, you know, opening the windows, increasing fans, things like that. All of those will be helpful, making sure there's cleaning supplies. Talked to one of my friends and there was no soap in the bathrooms. Those little things I think can make a really big difference. We have a couple very quick questions that our audience still wants to know about. The first on the topic of pregnancy and COVID-19 Pregnant women are very confused. What do they need to know about whether or not they can get the vaccine? In terms of pregnancy, we know that the people who've been most eligible for the vaccine so far are people who are at highest risk of either exposure to the disease or of getting sick when they get it. In that context, pregnant women have higher risk of disease to themselves and higher risk of disease to their babies. And in that context, I would strongly encourage everyone to roll up their sleeve and get the vaccine. There's been misinformation about whether mRNA vaccines can impact fertility. Can they? And then what about J&J's vaccine, which uses a different technology? We have seen no signals of changes in fertility with either vaccine. Double masking. Is it useful? Yes or no? I would say the most important thing about a mask is that it's well-fitting and either a surgical mask that's well-fitting around the nose or a cloth mask that's well-fitting. What does the CDC say to Americans who want to travel abroad? Now is not the time to travel. Let's get this disease under control. Let's get this pandemic under control. Now is not the time to travel. And then my last question is, if you could convince the governors of every state to do one thing tomorrow, what would that thing be? Can I have two? (laughs) Yeah, you definitely can have two. Encourage your citizens to wear a mask. Encourage everyone to wear a mask. And encourage people to roll up the sleeve for the vaccine when it's available to them. Dr. Walensky, I know you have to jump. Uh, We really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us today. Thank you so much. I really appreciate the opportunity.
All right, let's get to three headlines from the week's news and give you a little bit of context. First up, three women have accused New York State Governor Andrew Cuomo of sexual harassment. Here's the context on those claims. Earlier this month, two of Cuomo's former aides said the governor had made advances toward them at work. And this week, a third woman came forward to accuse Cuomo of misbehavior at a wedding, where she said the governor put his hand on her bare lower back, placed his hands on her face, and allegedly kissed her cheek. Now, New York's attorney general is appointing outside investigators to look into these matters. We should point out Cuomo's already in hot water over something entirely different, his COVID response. Federal investigators are looking into Cuomo's failure to count deaths in nursing homes during the pandemic, amid allegations that he actually hid that data. Facing two very different but very serious scandals, critics are calling on Cuomo to step down now. But for the time being, he says he's not going anywhere. All right, next headline. The Senate is working today, but House members went home after a new intelligence warning that Trump supporters and extremists might try to storm the Capitol again today. The context? Law enforcement has been on high alert this week after Capitol Police received intelligence that there could be another attack on the U.S. Capitol on March 4th. If March 4th seems kind of random, it is, but not to conspiracy theorists. QAnon supporters believe March 4th is the OG inauguration day, when somehow former President Trump will return to power. As we saw this week, federal agencies and the Capitol Police are making an effort to communicate domestic terror threats in advance to avoid repeating some of the mistakes they made during the January attack on the Capitol. And law enforcement is also warning that the increase in these types of threats may be the new normal. Here was FBI Director Christopher Wray this week. The problem of domestic terrorism has been metastasizing across the country for a long time now, and it's not going away anytime soon. Okay, last headline. Six Dr. Seuss books will no longer be published because, according to the business that protects the author's legacy, they portray people in ways that are, quote, hurtful and wrong. Here's what you need to know. It turns out, educators, experts, and academics who reviewed Dr. Seuss's collection found a lot of his portrayals of non-white characters play on racist stereotypes. So his estate decided to pull six titles in particular that contained the imagery in question. Though we're talking more 1947's Mick Elligott's Pool than we are Green Eggs and Ham. Still, cue controversy. The move is now generating some backlash from people crying cancel culture including some lawmakers like House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy. First, they outlawed Dr. Seuss, and now they want to tell us what to say. This term, cancel culture, has become so loaded that it actually means different things to different people. The books in question represent a small fraction of the Dr. Seuss catalog and don't include any of his bestsellers. So for now, the vast majority of Seuss's work is still available. President Biden's been talking about a $15 minimum wage for a while. Here he was during the presidential campaign. People are making six, seven, eight bucks an hour. These first responders, we all clap for as they come down the street because they've allowed us to make it. What's happening? They deserve a minimum wage of $15. Anything below that puts you below the poverty level. Congress hasn't raised the federal minimum wage since 2009 when it jumped a whole 70 cents to $7.25 an hour. And thanks to inflation, that's just not a lot of bang for your buck anymore. 
So, advocates have been campaigning to increase the minimum wage to $15 an hour since 2012. One study found that two-thirds of the public support it, but public sentiment doesn't always equal legislation. So, Democratic leaders tried to get creative and planned to slip the minimum wage increase into the new COVID relief bill. That was the plan, but now it's in limbo. In a blow to the Democrats, Democrats have basically admitted defeat on the minimum wage. Democrats will not be allowed to include a minimum wage increase in their COVID relief bill. It was one of President Biden's key campaign promises, but he's not going to be able to deliver on that promise quite yet. So what happened to that $15 minimum wage? Here's the answer in 60 seconds. Dems tucked the minimum wage increase inside the COVID relief bill probably for two reasons. One is that blocking COVID relief bills during a pandemic just because you oppose raising the minimum wage might not look good, especially if your constituents are relying on another stimulus check to pay their next set of bills. Second, because the COVID bill deals with tax and spending issues, it can be passed through a process called reconciliation with a majority of just 51 Senate votes. That's instead of the 60 votes most other major legislation needs to pass. However, this reconciliation process can only be used for legislation that deals with taxes and government spending. It's up to the Senate parliamentarian to make that call. And last week she said, hold up, raising the federal minimum wage isn't about taxes, spending, or the debt limit. So this has to go. So what's next? Now, if lawmakers want that increase to happen, they'll have to pass it through separate legislation. So they'll need some Republicans to join that fight. And while some Republicans are willing to compromise, they'll only go as far as $10 or $11 an hour. All of which means a major policy goal of the Biden administration is now facing an uncertain future. How'd we do? Want us to skim a burning question from the news on an upcoming episode? Send us an idea to audio at theskim.com. This week, the think tank Freedom House published a new report that found countries around the world are less free than they were a year ago by a pretty big margin. The Freedom in the World report is an annual assessment of political rights and civil liberties in 210 countries and territories around the world. And based on this assessment, we divide the world into free, partly free, and not free countries. That's Amy Slipowitz, a researcher at Freedom House. Our data found that less than 20% of all people now live in a free country. So that's the lowest proportion that we've seen since 1995. According to Slipowitz, some of these declines were almost expected. 2020 was the 15th consecutive year that freedoms around the world declined. Over the last year, Freedom House said India slipped from being free to partly free after an intense crackdown on the media, protest groups, and minorities. Meanwhile, two other countries may be familiar to American tourists, Jordan and Thailand, slipped from being partly free to not free. But something accelerated those declines in 2020. Hint, it's the reason I'm recording this podcast from my apartment and not from the Skim's office. The pandemic certainly played a role in exacerbating this long-term decline. It provided undemocratic leaders an opportunity to really use it as an excuse to consolidate power or to crack down on dissent. And Slipowitz says one of the really alarming things is these declines are happening in the U.S. too, not just in countries where democracies are newer and more fragile. 
So the United States, I'll just say, is still a free country, and it is among the freest in the world still. But in 2020 alone, its score actually fell by three points on our 100-point scale. And this is really a large drop for an established democracy. One of the things that we're really concerned about in 2020 in particular are mass arrests and violence against journalists at protests. According to Slipowitz, journalists have been busier than ever, not just covering the news, but holding governments accountable for their pandemic decisions or their often unequal responses to protesters. And Slipowitz said, America's free press tried their best to fact-check President Trump's baseless claims that the 2020 election was rigged, even though the damage of those comments was impossible to prevent. This really sowed doubt among a significant portion of Americans. And I think it has implications for global freedom as well. If democratic nations are backsliding or showing weakness, this really gives authoritarian actors something to point to and more space to claim that democracy is an inherently inferior system. Overall, freedom declined in 73 countries this year. But Slipwitz doesn't think all hope is lost. I don't think this decline is irreversible. So you see places like in Myanmar where citizens are protesting against an oppressive regime that just took over. And it kind of shows the demand for freedom is really just getting stronger. What I am encouraged by is the Biden administration's return to a foreign policy that's more focused on democracy and human rights. So I am hopeful that democratic governments are going to be able to work together both this year and beyond. And I think by doing this, this will help to reverse this 15-year decline. Let's take it back to March 2020, when you had to download Zoom probably for the first time. For some of us, it's been a year of looking at our colleagues in rectangular boxes on our computer screen. And somehow, your boss still can't find the unmute button. If all this virtual connection has you feeling tired, maybe more tired than you'd feel after a workday and before times, you're not alone. Stanford recently released the first peer-reviewed study that said, hell yeah, Zoom fatigue is real. So to find out why, and to get some tips, we called up the study's author. Jeremy Balenson, I'm the founding director of Stanford's Virtual Human Interaction Lab. Professor Balenson told us one of the main reasons we're so tired is because we aren't actually supposed to be looking at ourselves all day. And now a lot of us have been doing that via Zoom for a year. Imagine you were working at your job physically, wherever your job was pre-COVID, and there was somebody uh, whose job it was to follow you around the office and to make sure wherever you were, whatever you said, whatever you did, could be a hard conversation, it could be you're lifting up a box, whatever you did, somebody had a handheld mirror and was walking around to make sure you were staring at your own face for every single task you did at work. I mean, that sounds bonkers, right? That mirror, aka your own video box on Zoom, can actually have some serious psychological effects on how you behave at work. There's now been five decades of research on psychology showing that when you're forced to look at yourself in a mirror or via a live video, that this causes you to evaluate yourself, to scrutinize yourself. Over time, this causes stress, negative emotions. And there's been a few studies now that show that being forced to watch a live video of yourself affects women emotionally more than it does men. But it's not only about you seeing yourself. 
We don't know who needs to hear this, but having a zillion people looking at you on Zoom isn't normal either. Humans were not meant to be stared at directly in the eyes by other people for hours on end. Now, if you were in a real meeting and you were the speaker, people would look at you. They'd look at their notes and they'd look around the room, but they would look at you for a decent portion of it. If you were a listener and someone else was speaking, no one would be staring at you, right? What Zoom does is it makes a listener feel the same social anxiety from being stared at that speakers get. Everyone gets stared at all the time. Another problematic way Zoom is changing our work is that it physically limits our mobility and range of motion. So in a real meeting, face-to-face, you're pacing, you're doodling, you're going to a whiteboard, you're stretching, you're getting a drink of water, and you're moving around. Because you've got this cone, this field of view that's a cone, and the cultural norms of Zoom practice, you have to kind of stay in the center of that cone and you have to kind of be looking at other people. Otherwise, you're not being a good colleague. The consequence of that is you don't move. Which is bad for our health and for our actual creativity and stimulation at work. And not only does it cause exhaustion, there's a great dissertation from Stanford in the Department of Education that people are more creative when they're walking. Uh, They come up with better solutions. And the final reason you probably can't wait to log off at the end of the day is because Zoom makes us all have to try a little harder to show we're interested, to show we're listening, and to show we're present, which theoretically makes us good employees, but in reality... It takes extra mental energy to do the things that you would do normally. Now, all of a sudden, you have to do things like clap your hands in a quiet way to show that you agree with somebody or, you know, do the thumbs up gesture or nod your head up and down really uh, stringently. Basically, even if you've mastered your Zoom thumbs up, it's still overwhelming to have to process these signals and exert extra effort to communicate. You're getting this fire hose of nonverbal gestures, and we interpret nonverbal gestures with the back part of our brain with this lower level processes, and it's hard to turn that off. If even one of these things sounds familiar, we've got some good news. There are a lot of really simple fixes we can implement to make virtual work less exhausting. Literally one click of a button can undo a lot of those effects. So if you right click your camera feed, there's this button that says hide self view. You'll click that and then you others will still get to see you, but you won't see yourself. And I found this to be, you know, it's like weight lifting off your shoulders. And if you're trying to get rid of all those people staring back at you. If you go to the top right corner of Zoom, there is a button that looks like a few boxes. If you click it, your Zoom window goes from being the full screen to not full screen. And you can then shift the size of it. And once you do this, you're just not gonna go back. You know, this sounds ridiculous, but you can make your Zoom window two inches by two inches, okay? If if you do that, you still see the, the stuff you need to see, okay? You still see, you know, people that are there, but you no longer have huge faces. Then there are a few bigger changes we can make, especially if you feel like you need to be a bit more mobile. Turn off your video or you don't turn off your video and you just get up and stretch and you do those things and you kind of just break those norms. Now, we, we can't all do that. That's easy to do if you're a boss, um, not as easy to do if you're an employee. The second one, if you have an external camera and you put it far away, meaning it's high up and it's, it's farther from the screen, the farther away you are from the camera. So then you can do things you know, that allow you to move around a bit, but still signal you're paying attention to your colleagues. And by the way, especially if you're a boss or a manager, normalize meetings where people get to turn their camera off. Make it mandatory that cameras are off for the meetings that you don't need faces. In other words, just make the ground rules 
This is an audio only call. Finally, there's one thing we should all do to make this whole work from home thing actually benefit us. Spend 30 minutes. And in this 30 minutes, I want you to set up your room to be comfortable for your Zoom call. What does that mean? It means figuring out what lighting is best, figuring out maybe you need a couple books onto your laptop because you like that camera angle a little better. And maybe put in an external keyboard because the external keyboard puts half of between you and the screen. Maybe you are have an external camera that you're moving around. Tinker for 30 minutes. In a real meeting, you think about where you're going to sit, you think about who you're going to sit next to, you think about if you're going to look at a person for too long and who you're going to talk to, but we don't do that for our Zoom setup. And so I want all listeners to spend 30 minutes tinkering with their setup, and you're going to get a setting you like, and you're going to use that for the next year. I promise you, your days are going to be better. Thanks for listening to Skim This. This podcast was skimmed by Luke Vargas and me, Alex Carr, with additional help from Peter Bonaventure and Kira Long. Our head of audio is Graylin Brashear. Skim This will be back in your feed again next Thursday. Until then, for more Skim and to sign up for our daily newsletter, head on over to theskim.com. <laughs>